Welcome to the More Attention, Less Deficit podcast. This is episode 81, A Happy Relationship in 12 Jokes or Less. This is a recording of my 75-minute presentation for Baltimore Chad. Lots of fun, lots of laughs, and lots of good lessons. Enjoy. The book, More Attention, Less Deficit, Success Strategies for Adults with ADHD, is available at addwarehouse.com and pretty much everywhere else, including on the Kindle. But if you enter coupon code 19380, my zip code, at addwarehouse.com, you'll save 25%. Cool. I'm psychologist Dr. R.A. Tuckman, author of More Attention, Less Deficit, and Integrative Treatment for Adult ADHD, a practical, easy-to-use guide for clinicians. For more information about either book, archives of this podcast, links to past presentations, handouts, and information about upcoming teleclasses and presentations, check out adultadhdbook.com. I'm doing something a little different this week. I don't usually post up the full recording of presentations that I've done, but I had such a great time in Baltimore with this one on relationships that I kind of just had to use it. I just wanted to share it. The folks at Chad Baltimore Chad did a great job, but these podcasts get over 2,000 downloads apiece, which is a lot more than we had in person for the you know, presentation itself. So I want to share it with as many people as possible. I did a condensed version of this as a podcast, but you know it's kind of hard to be funny in an empty room in front of a microphone without the energy of the crowd to make it more lively. So if you listen to that episode from, I don't know, like a month ago, you'll probably like this one a whole lot better. And if you do like it, forward it on to a friend or, you know, maybe your romantic partner. Enjoy. This presentation started being called Make Love Not War which is a great title. But what happens when you create a title six months before a presentation is you have six months to think about your presentation. The, now, the title now is A Happy Relationship in 12 Jokes or Less. Because this is supposed to be fun. It's Friday night. It's a nice place. Boring lecture. Not what anyone's into. So I decided to make this a little bit different. Let's start with our first joke. How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? None. The light bulb has to want to change. So that's what we're looking for. I want this to be a presentation that is going to be informative, hopefully entertaining, but that will give you guys your own desire to change. That we're going to have fun, but we're also going to learn some lessons. And my goal is really to make this a great presentation that enables you guys to go home and make your relationships at least a little bit better. Now, I've done, I've done a million presentations. I've done the standard, you know, ADHD relationships presentation. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good presentation. But I wanted this to be a better presentation, which is why I sweated over putting in 12 jokes and a bunch of other stuff. So, you know, I pushed myself to make this a better presentation. I'm hoping that you guys will take some of this information, push yourselves to go home and make a better relationship for yourself. So let's jump into it. Young guy walks into a bar, sits down next to an older guy, says, round of drinks for everyone, on me. Bartender, you know, lines him up, gives everybody a drink. Old guy sitting next to him says, wow, great, uh, you know, thanks. Thanks for the drink. What's going on? What's the occasion? Guy says, well, you know what? 
been with my girlfriend for a couple of years. Think I'm going to propose. The guy says, huh, interesting. Why are you doing that? The guy says, well, you know, I'd like to have sex every night. The old guy says, really? That's why you got divorced. <laughs> now, let me preface this by saying, most of the jokes I know I learned when I was a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> Having said that, I have not yet started drinking, so this is going to be a much cleaner presentation. Um, if you call me at the end of the night, it might be a very different presentation. But in any event, so why is that joke funny? Like, why can we relate to that joke? The reason is we go into relationships thinking we're getting one thing, and lo and behold, we turn out to get something else. Now, obviously, relationships involve more than just sex, but, you know, I mean, like I said, I learned these jokes at 13, so maybe that wasn't really my priority at 13, but, you know, for those of us who are not 13 anymore, relationships involve a lot. But nonetheless, that same sort of struggle is there. We go in expecting one thing, we come out getting something else. And that's okay. Because it's in that struggle and it's in that change of going from thinking that we know what we're getting to actually being faced with something else that we grow and become better people as an individual and also as part of a couple. And I mean, there's a line that I use a lot with my clients and otherwise that I've stolen from a book I read, which is, the sign of a good relationship is that it forces you to become a better person or at least it pushes you to become a better person. And I totally believe it. Because it's hard to become a better person without an intimate relationship there to push you. Casual relationships don't do it, because we're all polite in casual relationships. And if someone pisses you off in a casual relationship, it's not really that big a deal, because you just move on. In an intimate relationship, meaning romantic relationship, especially if you're living together, or family relationships, you can't just move on, at least not as easily. <clears throat> as much as, you know, it's easy to say, boy, if I knew then what I knew now, you know, what I know now, the trouble is you couldn't have known back then what you know now. You know, and I can think back on the beginning of my relationship before we were married, and some of the things that, well, I'll say that I did, and some of the things that I thought and some of the stuff I was feeling, and, oh, man, boy, would I go back and do some things differently. But how could I have known that if I hadn't gotten to this point now? So it's less about kind of beating yourself up about the past, and it's more about learning from the past and creating a better future. Ideally, your intimate relationships bring out the best in you. Unfortunately, they can also bring out the worst, and that's the challenge. They bring out generosity, kindness, forgiveness, but they can also bring out pettiness, vengeance, small-mindedness, passive-aggressiveness. I mean, we're capable of all of these things. So the fact that we have our, you know, less-than-perfect moments that's not noteworthy, because everybody has those less than perfect moments. What's noteworthy is, what do you do with it? How do you make it better? How do you rise above to something else, to be more the person that you would like to be, or you would like to think of yourself as, rather than 
the worst of what you can bring. And it's not easy stuff at all. The easy stuff all gets resolved in the beginning. You know, everything you agree on, done, off the table, not a problem. All this stuff that, like, one of you doesn't really care about at all, done, not a problem. What are you left with five years later, ten years later, twenty years later? The stuff that both people care about and neither one is willing to just sort of drop and let go. Or the stuff that wasn't an issue when you were, you know, dating and living separately, but are an issue when you have money mixed together, or you have kids, or you have other big decisions, or somebody gets a job an hour away, or 10 states away. Those are the challenges, and those are the times that really demand our best, even if they can very easily bring out our worst. <clears throat> woman goes on a business trip. She's gone for a week. Calls her husband on the second day. Checking in. How's it going? They have an elderly cat that, you know, she's very concerned about. Calls home. Husband picks up. Husband says, um, yeah, cat died. And she's shocked. Says, oh my God. Okay, someone over here say I heard this. This is like a classic in my family. Um, so um, she's just, you know, stunned by this news. So she collects herself, and she tells him, you can't just tell me, like, all of a sudden. You need to work into it. You know, you can't just drop a bomb like that. You need to tell me, you know, the first high day I call, you need to say, well, you know, the cat, she got out. Somehow she got onto the roof. I don't know. Maybe she climbed up the tree and she's up there. But, you know, we're trying to get her down. And then the next day when I call, you know, she's still up there. We can't get her. She's not looking so good. You know, kind of over a few days, work, work me into this. The husband says, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay I, I understand. Says, oh, good. Well, you know what? Just remember that for next time. Okay, fine. So, how's my mom doing? Um, <laughs> mom's on the roof. <laughs> this is why I hate communication training for relationships. Because it doesn't work. It doesn't get to the real issue. You know, I mean, yes, we all need to, res you know, communicate respectfully and we need to listen and paraphrase to so what I hear you saying is and that kind of stuff. But that's like... 1% of it. That just enables you to do the other 99%. And that's the heavy lifting. And by the way, you can also, if you're particularly uninterested in actually doing anything to improve the relationship, you can very easily waste all your time and energy on the communication part of, well, what I hear you saying is, or when you do this, I feel that. No, you didn't put it in the right phrase. You didn't phrase it the right way. Now I don't need to talk to you about the real issue here. Let's talk about how we talk about it, not talk about what we're talking about. <laughs> so communication training, yeah, great place to start. But that's like first grade. That's not grad school. And marriage is grad school. <clears throat> so... Here's the slide nobody in this room needs to see in order to know. Because, you know, if it 
didn't make your relationship harder, you wouldn't be here, right? You'd be somewhere else. No offense to Turf Valley or anything, but, you know, you'd be somewhere else. So, but nonetheless, ADHD makes relationships harder. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about how it makes relationships harder, because, you know, if you're living it, you don't need me to tell you what you're living. So, um, but the sort of cliche, which is, you know, there's probably some truth to it, but cliche nonetheless, is that the relationship where one person has ADHD and one doesn't is that however it started, what it becomes, at least once you're living together and have like commingled responsibilities, is the irresponsible one and the control freak. Both of which, by the way, are lovely labels. I'm sure everyone here will be very happy to take one of those labels. Of course, the irony is there's actually a little bit of truth in that. You know, one of the people, I won't name names, one of the people is being kind of less responsible, and the other one is being, let's just say they have a lot of opinions, and they feel free to share those opinions on a regular basis. Now, the problem is, if you start out here, when you get together, you get to this point. And that's the polarizing that takes place. This is not an ADHD in relationships thing exclusively. This is like any relationship. This is just the way these things go. We polarize each other. And what that means is the person without ADHD feels the situation is getting out of control. Oh, my God, you haven't paid the electric bill yet? Or, you know, pick the million examples of your choosing. Um, that person starts to get anxious, uh-oh, problem, and then what do they do? What's that? <laughs> Complain. Or nag. Or, you know, make helpful reminders. Right? Because they're feeling anxious. And the way to feel less anxious is to get that goddamn bill paid. Now, of course... Few people actually enjoy living in a police state, so, you know, so they start to create this black market kind of thing where they do all this underground stuff. Yes, I paid that bill, by which I mean I'm now thinking about paying that bill, and one of these days I intend to find it, and then I'm going to write a check, and there's there's a possibility that that check will wind up in a mailbox. <laughs> or as a client of mine sort of sent me an email, she said, uh, she forgot to bring her checkbook to session, so she said, okay, I wrote you a check and I put it in the envelope, but of course we both know there's still no guarantee you're actually getting paid. <laughs> because, you know, 99% of the way there still rounds down to zero. <laughs> right? Because until it's in the mailbox, licked, stamped, it's not mailed. So it's all the way or nothing. Now, of course, the dirty little secret here is that the person with ADHD is probably pretty obvious about this sort of stuff they're bringing to the relationship. What's less obvious is the other person ain't no saint. Not that any of us are, by the way. But the ADHD person, because they're so much more obvious, hides the non-ADHD partner's piece of it. And that's when it gets interesting, is when we really begin to look at both sides of it. So, another joke. Johnny and Sally, you know, young kids, decide 
it's time to start cursing. You know, they hear dad doing it sometimes. They decide they're old enough. Time to start. So they say, great, let's do it. They go downstairs. Mom's in the kitchen making breakfast. Mom says, all right, what do you guys want for breakfast? Johnny says, what the hell? I'll have some Cheerios. Whack, up to your room. Mom turns to Sally and says, what do you want for breakfast? Sally says, I don't know, but it sure as hell ain't going to be Cheerios. <laughs> now, if anybody's a cognitive behavioral therapist, that's like a great joke for you because what's going on there is Sally learned a very important lesson in watching her brother get whacked. The problem is she learned the wrong lesson. It's not a problem about Cheerios. It's a problem about cursing in front of mom. And we do that all the time. I mean, that's why therapists can do what we do, because if we were all perfect and learned the ideal lesson and nothing more and nothing less, us therapists would be sitting in our room by ourselves, right? So what we do is we help people kind of tweak the lessons that they're learning from what has happened to them over the course of their life. Relationships are a great place to learn a lot of the wrong lessons especially because we've had our parents screwed up relationship teaching us all sorts of the wrong things, right? So <clears throat> it becomes a situation where in the relationship, you need to actually talk to each other and sort out what exactly is going on. And this is, you know, going back to that cliche of the, the irresponsible one and the control freak, part of that discussion is putting yourself into the other person's shoes. Oh, you're not irresponsible, you mean well, but remembering little things doesn't play to your strengths. Oh, okay. And you feel worthless when I harangue you about forgetting things. Got it. I mean, this is obviously like the, you know, two-second version. But, you know, a year of therapy will get you there. But um, <laughs> that's right. I'm out of the area, so I'm not fishing for business. Um, and then, you know, the converse on the other partner's side. So it's kind of learning the right lessons based on what our partner is doing. And that's really the trick. And in order to do that, we need to sort through our own stuff because we all bring biases to every situation. So we need to sort through that. So because ADHD is sort of a, a disorder of actualizing good intentions, which basically means people with ADHD have good intentions in the way that everybody has good intentions. The trouble is taking those good intentions and converting them into action, that's a whole nother thing. And not that any of us are perfect and we all have our obstacles in this crazy world we live in, but ADHD in particular makes it harder to consistently, not once in a while, but consistently and reliably convert your intentions into actions. So because of that, there's a couple of good lessons that come out. First of all, if you're the person with ADHD especially, but frankly, anybody in the room, make your intentions clear, especially when your actions don't line up. Preferably beforehand, honey, here's what I'm intending to do, but especially afterwards. On the flip side of that, when your spouse or partner has done something that seems particularly let's just say, not well thought through, um, look beyond the immediate action and look for the intention behind it. If they had good intentions, 
it's easier to feel good about them and happy about what they did, even if you're not psyched about the ultimate outcome. Now, of course, part of the problem here is in relationships, we personalize everything. What you're doing is a direct comment on who I am and how you feel about me, and it's also a direct comment on who you are, right? That's sort of one of the things that we do in relationships. Not the best thing to do. And by the way, if you have like middle school kids or high school kids who are dating or just like friends and gossip and all that kind of like crazy, you know, you could rip your head off kind of stuff, like that's totally this. It's personalizing everything. That's what teens do. That's why their lives are so kind of chaotic. So in relationships, hopefully as adults, you know, we're a little older and wiser. We're definitely older. Hopefully we're a little wiser. Um, but you get into this thing where, it's, you know, if you loved me, you would remember things. You wouldn't forget stuff. You wouldn't interrupt me when I talk. You would put the milk away after you used it kind of stuff, which, you know, like on the surface, I mean, there's something to that. You know, if you love someone, you try to do things that make them happy, right? But if you left the milk out, does that mean you're sticking it to your wife because you know she hates rotten milk? I mean, maybe but I hope not. Of course, the flip side of that is, from the ADHD partner's perspective, is if, if you loved me, then you would leave me alone. You would stop nagging me. You would let me do my thing. I don't know why you're so big on deadlines anyway. Late fees aren't that bad. Um, whatever, you know, so it's like, but it's that same sort of thing that if it's coming down to if you love me, you will whatever you're probably going to have a harder discussion. Doesn't mean that these aren't worthy things, worthy goals. Just take that out that if you love me part. <clears throat> now, ADHD is not a get out of jail free card. You can't say I have ADHD, therefore I should be freed of all responsibilities. Because, you know, life doesn't work that way. Not as an adult. Frankly, like, I mean, my three-year-old, I expect him to do like a couple things. I don't get much of it, but, you know, I expect him to. I'd, I'd like to think he would. Um, but by the same token, ADHD is not the cause of every single problem and unhappiness in your relationship. So it's not one extreme, but it's also not the other. ADHD is a part of the relationship, but it's not the only part of the relationship. Whether someone in the relationship has ADHD or not, happiness takes hard work on both people's parts. And that means both people are actively involved, not that you're kind of passively waiting for the other person to do their thing, as if you're waiting for a nice day so you can sit out and say, isn't this lovely? You know, it's more a matter of creating that happy situation. So let's talk about excuses versus explanations, because, you know, this is kind of a biggie in the ADHD world. Oh, ADHD is just an excuse, right? That old sort of nonsense thing. ADHD is not an excuse at all. And I don't think it should be used as an excuse. And the problem with excuses is this. Excuses lower expectations. Oh, you know, he, he has ADHD. He can't do that. Or don't expect her to do it. She has ADHD. It won't happen. Okay, great. You know, you're free of the responsibility. But is that really the situation you want to be in where you're treated like a kid? Of course not. Nobody wants to be in that position. By contrast, ADHD is indeed an explanation. 
in the sense of if someone has ADHD, things like being on time will be difficult for them. Doesn't mean that they shouldn't work on it, but it also means that if that person has ADHD, don't get upset if they're running late. Take it into account, plan accordingly. So, and that's for both people. So for the person with ADHD, if you know you tend to run late, set an alarm to go off before it's actually time to leave, for example. Or if you're the, other, the non-ADHD partner, set up a situation where you give a reminder before, you give the reminder nicely, the other person takes the reminder nicely. So it isn't this yelling thing, right? And as much as knowledge is power, and the whole point of getting diagnosed is so that you know what tends to work, and you can do more of that, you know, stuff that other smart people have already figured out, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So that's why we get diagnosed, is because it helps us target what, what to do about the situation. So knowledge is power, but with that power comes responsibility. You know, sort of a counterexample to that is it's kind of like saying, boy, when I have nine beers, I get really messy. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Give me nine beers, bartender, right? And then not taking responsibility for it. It's like, no, like if you know that this is a situation that impacts you or impacts your performance or how you do in life, whether we're talking ADHD stuff or whatever, if you know it, with that knowledge comes a responsibility to use it in an effective way. And that's not just a responsibility to the other person. There's also something of a responsibility to yourself in the sense of integrity and what kind of a person you like to think of yourself as. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Now, fair doesn't always mean equal, but fair is still important. We're attuned to, to unfairness. We notice when other people get more than we do. Whether you like it or not, you notice. So as proof of that, I did a case study. Um, when I was a kid, I've got a brother who's two years younger. Um, so you know he's going to wind up doing bad in this story, right? Um, when I was a kid, my grandmother would always, she'd always send us some money, you know, for Christmas. I was one of, you know, she sent us an envelope with a little bit of money in it. So I would always, I'd watch him opening his envelope. And it always purposely opened mine just a little bit slower. So he'd pull out a $20 bill. And then like two seconds later, I'd go, hey, 50 bucks. Okay, what are the odds that there's 50 bucks in my envelope and 20 in his, right? But of course, as soon as I say, hey, 50 bucks, boom. Huh? What? Because he was attuned to it. He noticed that, wait a second, that's not right. You're not getting 50 if I'm getting 20. but <clears throat> you know, so that's kind of why that worked. And by the way, there's no one who's going to be as cruel to you in your life as a sibling or who will bring out the worst in you as a sibling. Although spouses are pretty close, but, um, but I think it's that we usually don't know our spouses when we're kids. So, you know, it's a little bit different. But, you know, as much as we all want balance, really, we don't want 50-50. What we want is complementarity. Because it's not like I, you know, told my wife, okay, honey, let's do this. You get pregnant with our first child, and I'll get pregnant with our second child. <laughs> Eat, like, you can't do an exact 50-50, but that's okay. Because you don't need, like, if you could do exact 50-50, 
why the hell do you have this other person in your life? Just do it on your own, you know? So apples need oranges. We want some balance to it. And that's, I think, what makes it interesting. And, you know, as one example of this, um, my wife tends to worry more than I do. I'm more of that, like, ah, it's fine. You know, oh, there's smoke billowing out of the kitchen. Ah, it's fine, right? So that's our balance. Now, what I'll say is, generally, I tend to be correct more often, but, but the times that she's right, it's really good that she was right, okay? That's the balance. It's sort of like, it's like the smoke alarm. It doesn't go off often. Sometimes it's a false alarm. Hopefully, thankfully, thus far, it has not yet been a true alarm. But it's that same sort of thing. It's that balance, you know, of kind of knowing when is this a false alarm and when is this not a false alarm. So that's the balance that, as far as that one little piece of our relationship, that's how we balance each other out. And we're both better off for it, because if we had exactly the same set point and everything, we wouldn't need the other person, at least in that one specific regard. Now, of course, the problem is, you know, we talked about that kind of polarizing. It's easy to give in to that. It's easy to give in to that momentum of imbalance. And this is often what happens not right in the beginning of a relationship, but as a relationship becomes a little bit more established. So the person who's better at managing the checkbook winds up always managing the checkbook. You know, they can do it more easily, they can do it more quickly, more accurately, it doesn't bother them as much, there's less to worry about, whatever. And, you know, that, that makes sense. I mean, that's okay. Except when the imbalance continues and continues, and it's not just the checkbook, but it's also a bunch of other things, and then the relationship is like this. So the trick is, as much as you feel that pull and that easy slide, to not let yourself go there, at least not on everything, to be sort of mindful of the balance and the complementarity in the relationship. <clears throat> now, I get people in my office who sort of have this mindset that, you know, basically they're kind of there complaining about their spouse, as if here's the deal. As long as my spouse would do more of this and less of that, then I would be happy. That's it. That, you know, more of this, they do more of this, less of that, and, and that's it. But my feeling is it always takes two to tango. There's always two people involved in what's going on. And now the bad news is if that's true, you need to accept a certain amount of blame for whatever the bad situation is. You know, there's a problem in the relationship. I would love to be able to blame my wife for all of it, right? The problem is, let's say I'm correct, and it's entirely her fault. What power does that give me to change it? At that point, I'm just crossing my fingers and hoping that she's going to do whatever it is that I want her to do. And maybe it's just me that, I, you know, I mean, I do work for myself and all that, so, like, I admit I have certain, like, you know, control issues or whatever, but... I don't like just sort of passively sitting by and hoping that my wife is going to do whatever it is. I mean, it's like hoping for a nice day. Of course, we all hope for a nice day, and you can't control the weather. But, you know, if it's supposed to rain tomorrow and you don't bring an umbrella, well, that was the part that you could control. You can't control that there's water coming out of the sky. You can't control what water gets onto you. You know, so that's the sort of, like, 
even in, in what seems like a bad situation, it's important to try to step back and say, all right, what am I doing here that's contributing to this? What can I do to make this into a better situation? And it's not simply to get your partner off the hook. It's also because you want to be able to have some impact on it, some positive impact on the situation, and some positive impact on your own happiness. I'm also a firm believer that if you know, a problem comes up, you guys come to a solution, if both people are not happy with the solution, it will not last. Because we don't like being in unhappy situations. I mean, guilt will sort of like carry things a little way. Like you do some stupid thing, you're in the doghouse, you're like, oh, okay, I'll make you breakfast for the rest of your life and bring it up to bed for you, right? Three days you'll do it, maybe. Maybe a week if you really feel guilty. But at the end of a week, how guilty do you feel? Because then you don't feel guilty. Then you're starting to feel resentful. God, I can't believe you're still doing this, and you get all the crumbs on my side of the bed. And you know, So that's not a lasting solution. The lasting solution is the one that lasts. And in order for it to last, you both have to be happy about it. So a couple goes to the doctor. Um, this is... If you're ever wondering if I was a 13-year-old boy, this is going to be the joke that proves it. Um, so a couple goes to the doctor. The guy's having this sort of intense groin pain. Um, doctor comes in, checks him out, runs some tests, comes back into the room. He has this very kind of somber look on his face, and he says, Okay, Mr. Jones, I've, I've determined what the problem is. You have a very rare condition. What happens is your body produces far too much semen. And if you don't have sex every single day to drain it, this this could be fatal. And the guy's like shocked. Like he doesn't even know what the hell to make of this. He turns to his wife and says, I, I don't understand what's he saying. And his wife looks at him and says, he says you're going to die. <laughs> Now, that's like my favorite joke. Now, for some reason, it's not my wife's favorite joke, but, you know, whatever. So, have you ever been in one of those situations with your spouse where you're like, this is the only thing, like, I need from you. If you would only do this, I would be so much happier, you know, but like, duh, they won't do it. <clears throat> so... So let's talk about how to get a better deal, and then let's talk about how to give a better deal. Because if you're not given a better deal, you're not going to get a better deal for long. We are all responsible for our own happiness. If you're looking for your, to your spouse to do everything to make you happy, you're not going to be happy. You may have a compliant spouse for a little while, but by the way, really compliant spouses, they're kind of boring, right? Then just hire a maid, because that's, you know. But, yeah, Sharon says she'd give it a try for a year. Nothing against maids, because, frankly, that can be a really nice thing. But, um, but if you want to be happy, first, you have to figure out what you need. And that sometimes means sorting out your own dilemmas. I would like to have more free time, 
but I would also like to have a bit more money for whatever. Both worthy goals. Problem is, they usually tend to be in opposition. It's kind of like pick one or the other, you know, time or money, pick one. So you can't, you know, we look to our spouse to resolve these dilemmas for us in what are often unresolvable situations where there needs to be some hard choice made. Once you figure out what you want, you need to tell people what you want. The thing that makes me crazy is this idea of, well, if I tell you, then it doesn't count. I'm thinking of a number between one and a million. Tell me what I'm thinking, right? How about if you do tell your spouse and they do it, that's an even better sign because they're doing something to make you happy. So that whole, like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to wait for you to figure it out, I mean, just guaranteed set up for trouble. <clears throat> now, I have here, find new people if you need to. I'm not saying you should get divorced because definitely, I think, I don't know, I, was talk I, won't, I won't name names. I was talking to someone before, um, and, you know, what she was saying was, even with, with the new spouse, it was the same relationship, right? It's just because, I mean, let's face it, you're still half the relationship, so half the relationship ain't any different, and the other person <laughs> looks different, but once you get down to it, they're still kind of bringing a lot of the same stuff because you don't get randomly assigned new spouses, right? <laughs> you're picking them, they're picking you. How do you think you wound up together? Now, hopefully you're a little smarter and you've smoothed over some of those rough edges from the first to the second to the third, but which is also, by the way, why we sort of tend to date a couple people before we get married, usually, is because we smooth this stuff out and figure it out. But there's also something here to be said for seeking your happiness directly. Don't look to your spouse for every single bit of happiness. There are some times where it's better to do some things separately, and that's okay. Like, for example, um, I don't know, I like going to concerts. My wife sort of likes going to concerts, but doesn't really like going to concerts, not as much as I do. I'm cooler than she is, is what I'm trying to say. So, right, right as long as we all understand it. So, it used to be this thing where I would buy two tickets, we would go to the concert, she wouldn't be having fun, at least or quickly get to a point where the smoke and the crowds and the heat and the loudness and whatever, she wasn't having fun. Guess how much fun I started to have at that point. So who's winning there? Well, I guess the band is because they sold two tickets instead of one, but not a good time. So it then came to a point where maybe she comes, but a lot of times I just buy one ticket. Like I go by myself or I bring a friend or whatever, but she doesn't go and we're both happier for it. So. Those kind of like creative solutions sometimes are really the best way to go. An old man looks to the heavens, and every night he prays to God and says, I've been a faithful servant, I've lived a good life, I've never asked for much. But if I could win the lottery, I promise you I will use the money only for good works to make this world a better place and lessen the suffering of my fellow man. Finally, one day, the heavens open, and a booming voice speaks out to him. I have heard your prayers, and I will answer them. But do me a favor. Buy a ticket. 
And this is that sort of thing of like, we want our spouse to do that better thing, but we don't do the thing to set them up to do it. That kind of not telling our, our partner what we're looking for, not asking them what they want and what we can do to support them. That sort of like, it's once again, it's that reading your mind thing, which is a lovely idea. And, you know, it's a great carnival trick, but it doesn't actually work that well in terms of relationships. Whoops. So let's talk about giving a better deal, how to be a better spouse. If you're the person with ADHD, first of all, you're more than just ADHD. It's a part of who you are. It is not all of who you are. And that's important. It can feel like it is sometimes. But you are much more than your ADHD. You bring much more to your relationship and to everything else in your life than just your ADHD. Having said that, untreated ADHD makes your life harder as well as the life of your spouse. So get the treatment that you need in order to be more consistent, more effective, and better able to be the kind of person you want to be and create the life that you want to live. Now, in my first book for clinicians, sadly with a price tag to match, believe me, somebody, writing books is one of those things like, somebody's making money here, but it ain't me kind of thing, right? So, but in any event, in my first book, I talk about this four-part treatment model. Education, meaning learn as much as you can about ADHD. Stuff like this, other CHAD meetings, the CHAD conference in Atlanta, Attitude Magazine, teleclasses, books, articles, websites, whatever, anywhere, whatever. As long as you're learning more, it's probably good stuff. Education, medication, not that it's perfect, but the ADHD meds, they tend to work pretty good for the most part. It takes a bit of work sometimes to hit the bullseye, but they tend to make your life easier. Um, coaching, meaning specific practical strategies, staying more organized, getting places on time, tracking deadlines, stuff like that. And then therapy, it's that, you know, Cheerios thing, right? I'm a bad person, I'm irresponsible, I don't care enough, if only I had a better attitude, all that kind of like, all that, those wrong lessons that you learned in the past. So, you know your treatment's working well when there are fewer times that you have those ADHD moments so they don't come up as often. When they do come up, it's not as big a deal. And as big a deal, I mean things like, you know, let's say the problem is getting that bill out late. So you get your bills out late less often. When you do get it out late, it's not as big a deal. So let's say, um, I don't know, you put stuff on auto pay. So it pays automatically. Awesome. Well, there's a little bit of an overdraft fee, but 10 bucks compared to like $30 late fee. Cool, that's an improvement. That's a step in the right direction. That's a practical. Social side, your spouse isn't quite as pissed at you for 10 bucks as for 30. And in terms of the self-esteem, you're not as pissed at yourself for it. So that would be improvement as far as I'm concerned, which then gets to the last piece, which is a quicker rebound. That you don't feel like, ah, oh, there it is, messed it up. I'm always messing it up. I always will mess it up. This is never going to get better. You know, that Stuart Smalley kind of spiral. You know, I'm good enough and smart enough, doggone it, people like me. You know, and so it's like get back, you know, getting back in the saddle. Get back in, move along. 
rather than sort of drowning and feeling bad. Now, for the non-ADHD spouse, giving a better deal involves a few things too. First of all, you're not the passive victim of your spouse's ADHD. Yes, it does affect you, but it doesn't determine your entire life. I think there's something to be said also, and this is that dirty little secret, you know, admit what you're getting from it. Bad news is you got to pay all the bills. Good news is you get to do it your way, right? We're going to be honest here, a little bit of honest, right? That by the same token, the person with ADHD screwed it up a couple times. Oh, damn it. I demand that you let me do the taxes this year. You must let me do the taxes. Oh, you won't? Oh, man. All right. That, I guess I'm going to have to just watch TV then. Oh, well. Right? And in relationships, that's how it works sometimes, where even if we're getting nailed for something, we're also kind of getting something for it often. Relationships are complicated. And I think it's important to admit to both sides of it, because if you're not honest with yourself and you're not honest with your partner, you can't really have a full discussion about what the situation is and what you can do about it. For the, the partner or the person with ADHD, learn as much as you can, because your partner may have ADHD, but you sort of do also, because you have it in your life. And if you're having kids with this person, you probably get a little more in your life. Statistically speaking, the odds are pretty good you're going to get a little more ADHD in your life. <clears throat> Be an active part of your partner's treatment. Go to their meetings. Go to their therapist sometimes. Talk about what's going on. Lend your perspective. Hear the, you know, from the therapist. Talk to the psychiatrist or the prescriber. The med's working. Yes, no, maybe. It's nice to have a second perspective on this. More information is usually better. This idea of the magic threshold, and the idea here is this. It would be great to be perfect and never mess something up again, but that's not realistic because nobody's going to be that good. Whether you got ADHD or not, nobody's going to be that good. The magic threshold is this, that let's say instead of doing whatever it is, instead of doing it this often, you only do it this often. Still not perfect. You're not here. But, you know, you've come from here to here. Maybe that's enough. Subjectively speaking, maybe the other person is sort of cool with it. So, in other words, coming home late. So, it used to be you're half an hour late. Now you're only 15 minutes late. Maybe half an hour is over the threshold of what your spouse can take without kind of getting moralistic about it. But 15 minutes, good enough. Not psyched. But, all right, I can kill 15. Half an hour is whatever. I, I can manage 15 minutes, right? So for the person with ADHD, not as late and not as often. For the non-ADHD partner, less angry, less resentful, and bounces back to a good mood a little bit more quickly. Notice both people are involved here. Both people got a part to play. I think there's also a lot to be said for giving credit where credit is due, especially when it's something that's changed kind of slowly over a long period of time. It's easy to lose sight of that. And whenever my wife and I get into an argument about sort of like long-standing issues, because remember, the stu easy stuff got resolved, you're stuck with the hard stuff, it's always sort of a good reminder, I think, for both of us, but I'll speak for myself, of like, yeah, you know what? That thing 
it is better. It's not perfect, but it's definitely better than it was. And that's important. You feel a lot more optimistic at that point, as opposed to like that, you know, resentful kind of thing. Let's talk about giving a better deal, generally speaking. Relationships are negotiation. That's what they are. Conflict is inherent in relationships. It's inherent in life. The conflict arises anytime two people don't want exactly the same thing in exactly the same way at exactly the same time. Where should we go to dinner? I don't know. Let's go here. I don't know. I'd rather go there. What should we watch for TV? Let's watch this. No, let's watch that. Conflict. So conflict is not, the fact that you're having conflict is not interesting because that's like saying there's oxygen in your house. Congratulations, there's oxygen in my house too. What is interesting and what we're shooting for is disagreeing respectfully and productively. Respectfully meaning you don't do more damage than you have to in the disagreement. And productively meaning generally over time, not necessarily days, sometimes years and sometimes decades, but you know, Literally, sometimes decades, but there's this process of kind of moving things along. That there's a process that things are generally better now than they were, and there's a sense of some optimism that I think this will continue to get better. That, you know, over time. I mean, if I look at my 10 years of, of being together, or 13 years at this point, but like, you know, seriously, the big issues we have now, they were all present 10 years ago. We're not inventing new issues. I mean, we're putting new twists on them by having a kid and stuff like that. But seriously, it's all the same stuff, but it's better than it was. We understand it better. We're better about it. It used to be this big a problem. Now it's only this big a problem. And my guess is if you thought about your relationship over the last decade or like, you know, the first when you started to where you are now, it is probably a lot of the same kind of stuff. And that's how it should be. That doesn't mean that you're not doing well, that just means that's the way relationships work. Now, in this whole process, you know, I mentioned this idea of integrity. Integrity is the idea of kind of behaving according to principles, behaving according to the values that you personally hold. It doesn't mean that you just behave well to your spouse so that they don't come around and nail you. It's not like tit for tat or mutually assured destruction or anything like that. But it's kind of behaving well because that's the kind of person that you would like to be. That's the kind of person you would like to think of yourself as. And, you know, an example of this, um, just sort of a random example. Uh, as a psychologist, I don't work nine to five. It's tough in my business to work nine to five. I tend to work late into the night, um, you know, 8 o'clock, used to be 9 o'clock, 9.30, because if you see kids, your day doesn't start until 3, and if you see adults, you, your day can start at 6 a.m., but for a lot of adults, they can't get there before 5, so that's kind of part of the business, is you work late. So it would have been very easy, logistically speaking, for me to have had an affair over the years, because... You know, I mean, hell, I'm out late every night at work anyway. My wife would never, ever know. But I would know. And that's not what I do. So I never did. Now her office is across the hall. I think she might notice. But um, but that's not why her office is across the hall, in case you're wondering. Um, 
but it's that sort of thing of like, how do I want to be? And when we're fighting and we're really getting into it, there are cheap shots I could definitely take. Like she's giving me big fat openings and I could just like, boom, right? But I don't because I don't want to be that kind of person. And it's not that I'm worried that she's going to come back at me. It's that I don't want to do that. And that's the whole idea of integrity. And that's a part of kind of owing it to ourselves first and then owing it to our spouse. If you can be good with, with yourself, then you can be good in the relationship. So it begins with us before it becomes, it begins with one before it becomes two people. So let's talk some more about creating that better relationship. Now, there's this kind of anger avoidance cycle, we call it the chase, which is the person with ADHD minimizes fine, it's not a problem, oh yeah, I was going to get to that in a second, or I think I did that yesterday, or whatever. Covers it up, doesn't tell bad news, because, you know, when they bring it up, it's a fight, and nobody likes a fight, especially if it's the millionth time you've had the same goddamn fight. So, <clears throat> that's that half of it. Now, the other half of it is non-ADHD partner micromanages everything, blows up every time something comes up, criticizes, Okay, you did it, but it, you know you got the bail, the mail out, but it was a day late. Rather than saying, "Cool, at least you got the bills out. Good, at least it's done for a month." And each half of the cycle feeds the other half, and you know you're in trouble when you're at this point. So, whenever I have clients come in, if assuming it's let's say just one of them comes in, they're not coming in as a couple. What I say is, all right, you're the one sitting in front of me, so you're the one I'm going to tell this to, but if the other person was here, I'd tell them the same thing. Somebody's got to break the cycle. You're both a part of making the cycle. You can both be a part of breaking the cycle. So what can you do to make this into a better situation? Because, like I talked about before, no passive victims. Everybody's got a part in it. What can you do to make it into a better situation? <clears throat> now. If you want your partner to act better, if you want them to bring their best, you got to bring your best. Put it another way, if you want your per your spouse to do the right things and to do the good stuff and the better stuff, make it easy for them to do it by you doing it also. Because why are they going to keep doing their best stuff if you're not doing yours? Now, I talked about the idea of integrity that we should do this for our own sake. But there comes a point where your integrity kicks in and you're saying, okay, now I'm being a sucker because I'm being taken advantage of. And integrity does not mean being the sort of all-suffering. Integrity means behaving with values, which means being good to yourself as well as to the other person. And that pendulum can swing. You want to be good to your partner, but if your partner is not carrying their end, then you're not being good to yourself by allowing it to continue the way it's going. All right, a couple more jokes. How many self-righteous spouses does it take to screw in a light bulb? Light bulbs are really not a laughing matter. How many martyr, how many martyr spouses does it, self-sacrificing martyr spouses does it take to screw in a light bulb? 
no, no, you go out, have fun. I'll just sit here by myself in the dark. Yeah, all right. Someone's saying Jewish mothers. Actually, the real joke is how many Jewish mothers does it take to screw in a light bulb? No, no, you kids go out, have fun. I'll just sit here alone in the dark. But I modified it a little bit. So it's important to stay flexible in relationships. And as easy as it is to get self-righteous, it does you no good. As an example of that, um, it used to be when we lived in Virginia, um, the way it would work with the trash is you take your trash cans, you put them on the curb, the trash guys come, they empty it out, and they fling the cans on your grass. And then at the end of the day, you bring them back behind your house, right? So that's the way it works. So what would happen is my wife would always get home before me because that's just the way our schedules work. So I get home at, you know, 9.30 at night. I'm exhausted. And son of a bitch, the garbage cans are on the front lawn still. Now, it took all of about 12 seconds to walk the garbage cans to the back of the house. But it would just be like the straw that broke the camel's back, and I'd get really pissed about it. So I'd drag them back, and then I'd come home, and I'd be all surly, and, you know, definitely not. Like, even if I had a valid point, I was definitely not, like, being nice and productive about it. So it didn't do me any good, because then I'd come across as a jerk. She would say I was being a jerk, and she was right. And then we were just pissed for the next 20 minutes before it finally, like, settled out. It finally came to a point where I was like, okay, you know what? She's not good at seeing garbage cans in the dark. I tend to, sadly for me, I'm very good at seeing garbage cans in the dark, as it turns out. So I would just, I got to a point where I was like, fine. If they're on the grass, I'll bring them in. Whatever. Let's still make the most of what, what of the night we have left. Now, of course, as with any small thing that becomes a big thing, there's more going on than just garbage cans. So, you know, part of it was I was not happy about the fact that I was working so late, and that gets into all sorts of other things that I won't talk about here. But, um, but you know, so that was the bigger issue. So it really wasn't garbage cans. It was the bigger issue, and that's really where the conversation should be. But me being self-righteous and pissy about the garbage cans wasn't moving the conversation forward, and it definitely wasn't endearing anybody to me. So <clears throat> whenever we fall to that kind of self-righteousness, I am convinced I am right. Problem. There's actually, someone told me, I don't know if this is true, but there's an Italian curse, which is, may you have a lawsuit that you feel like you can win, or that you feel entitled to win. You know, because you'll spend $100,000 to win 20000 right? I will show them. <clears throat> so, it kind of brings up this idea, would you rather be right or happy? Now, that's an old AA thing. Would you rather be right or happy? Okay, in terms of garbage cans, I was right. Did it make anybody happy? No, not at all. Quite the opposite, actually. Everyone turned out to be a lot less happy at that point. So, those are the times to step back and say, all right, what is the bigger picture here? How else can I handle this? Would there, you know, is there some more productive way to bring to my wife the idea of, I would really appreciate it if you could bring the garbage cans up, because that's the last thing I need at 9.30 at night. So to try to bring out more of the better part of you in that kind of productive problem solving. 
I think it's important to recognize also that there are some times where something is a relationship problem. It's not a personal problem. Some people don't care about garbage cans. You know, if my wife was married to that guy, that wouldn't have been a problem in the relationship. That was a problem because it was specific to me and her. If I had a different wife, that might not have been a problem. So I think if you can see it as a relationship problem, this is something that between us we have created and between us we need to solve, maybe you can sort of put a little of the ego aside and not feel like this is something that you know you must battle to the end. <clears throat> now, we all have the right to make bad choices. You know, I said before, we're all responsible for our own happiness. I still believe that. Unfortunately, we're also, we also have the right to be unhappy. And where it gets complicated is when our happiness is tied to what our spouse does. I mean, that's the way it works when you live together, is your happiness is intertwined. There are some situations that are indeed worth doing something about. There are some situations that probably aren't. An example, um, I had a couple I was seeing back when we were in Virginia. Um, I'm in Pennsylvania now. But um, husband had ADHD. Her family lived nearby, you know, generally in the area. So um, they would often go to her parents for Sunday dinner and whatever, and she enjoyed it, and he kind of enjoyed it too. It wasn't that he hated it or anything, but, you know, he was sort of, his Sundays would kind of meander around. I swear I'll be home at four. Anybody guess when he was home? Not four. Um, so he would be late, so she would be pissed, and, you know, this would just repeat and repeat. Finally, it got to a point where she was like, you know what? I'm just going by myself. He has a car. He, know where, he knows where they live. He will get there when he does. So she would go, she'd be there at 4, she would enjoy being there, he would show up, I don't know, 4.30, 5, 6, whatever, and then she, and it got to, you know, I tried, got her to a point of feeling like, you know what, you don't need to explain why he's not there. That's for him to explain. That's his relationship with your parents. You don't need to be the one to explain why he does what he does. And that then took some of the pressure off of her, of this kind of like no-win situation. Wait at home and be angry at him, or go early and ex try to explain why he's not there, neither of which is really a good one. So the middle ground, the better solution was, she went at four, was like, yeah, well, you know him, he runs late, but he'll be here. Done. And then she can enjoy herself. Does that make sense? So kind of that same thing of, picking the situations that affect you enough. And the reason why it's important is if everything is a big battle, you very quickly either run out of ammunition or credibility. So if you waste your ammunition or credibility on the small things, you got nothing left for the big stuff that really matters. So that's the trick, is making those choices. Now, none of us like feeling anxious, although life tends to create situations that make us anxious, but there's a couple ways to deal with our anxiety. One of them is what's called external anxiety management. This basically means solve the problem. I feel nervous that we haven't started the taxes yet. Solution, let's start the taxes. Good, we've now made progress. We're where we should be. I don't feel anxious about the taxes. 
Internal anxiety management is dealing with it inside. And this is helpful in those situations where, okay, I would like to have the taxes done. We're not in a position where we can do that because whatever, some reason, we're not able to do it. <sighs> All right, I'm just going to put that aside. I can't do anything about it now. I'm just going to find a way to be less anxious inside. Or I could do something about getting the taxes done, but it's not worth the price paid. You know, our family's coming in for the weekend. I don't want to be sorting papers while they're here. So I'm just going to deal with the taxes later. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to focus on enjoying family being in. So that's internal anxiety management. These are both important. Too much external anxiety management creates a problem of being a control freak, where you have to control everything so that you won't be anxious, which makes you a whole lot of fun to live with, by the way. Um, Internal, too much internal anxiety management is fiddling while Rome burns. Oh, it's all right. It's only 8.30 on April 15th p.m. We have like three and a half hours. Three and a half whole hours. So it's that balance. As a quick aside, um, I was asked to present at a conference um, and this was like a couple months ago. So the, they sent me an email saying, oh, we've got a couple dates. We've got April, I don't know, I'll just pick the date. April 10th or April 17th. Are you available on either of these dates? This is a you know conference for um, ADHD folks. So I was like, yeah, I think you're going to want to go with April 17th. Because, you know, April 10th, now granted, for some people, it's five whole days before taxes are due. <laughs> For other people, it's only five days before taxes are due. But, but the trick is knowing whether this is a situation for external anxiety management or internal anxiety management. And when it's an inside job, as in, I got to deal with this inside, okay? I'm not going to let this stress me out. Best of luck to you. I'm not going to interfere, but I'm not going to get involved. There are times when that's the right thing. Of course, if you take it too far, then you're uninvolved, and that's not really what we're shooting for either. But it's striking that balance between the two and knowing that you've got two options. Family goes to the beach. Dad's playing with his little toddler by the edge of the water. And most of the waves, they're pretty small. They come in, you know, they kind of wash over the kid's feet. They go out, you know, kid has a bucket, playing going great, no problem. All of a sudden, this giant wave comes, crashes over the toddler, drags him out to sea, poof, gone. The dad falls to his knees, cries out, Lord, why would you do this? Innocent child, never hurt anyone in his life, only good things ahead of him. Why would you take him from us? Another giant wave comes in, deposits the child gently, unharmed, at the father's feet. The father says, oh my God, thank God. But, you know, he did have a hat. <clears throat> there are times where you need to be happy with what you got. And when you look at some of the research on long-term relationships where people have stayed together for a long time and are actually happy about having stayed together for a long time, um, what they find is that those couples have figured out 
I'm not going to change this about my partner. I got to learn to live with it. Does not mean I got to learn to be happy about it. It means there are other things about my spouse I am happy with. This is not one of them, but I'm not going to allow it to make me unhappy. It's kind of like if you live in Florida and it's 100 degrees in the summer, first of all, it's Florida in the summer. You got to know it's going to be hot here. So it doesn't mean you have to love that feeling, but you got to come to a point of accepting it, that that, that just is the way it is. I'm not going to change the temperature, the weather in Florida, and this is something about my spouse, I'm not going to change either. So it becomes a judgment call. Do I fight for this because it's really important to me? Or do I recognize this ain't going to change? And let me focus on other things that perhaps will change and that I can make better for both of us. A couple goes to a restaurant. Um, they order their food. It arrives. They both taste it. Husband says, God, this food is horrible. I can hardly eat it. The wife says, yeah, and the portions are so small. Right? So it's that, like, you know, screwed both ways. It's kind of complaining either way. Now, the trick in any relationship is to feel like you're on the same team. And in any relationship that's struggling, you're not on the same team. You're on opposite teams. And it's become zero sum. And what that means is, for me to win, you got to lose. And if you win, that means I'm losing. So everybody fights for every little bit they can get. It's exciting, sort of, in a way, but it's not satisfying, right? So <clears throat> at that point, it becomes a situation where you're working in opposition to each other. And I think we all have those moments, you know, where it's, it does feel like that. And there are some situations where it's true. Certainly, having a toddler, it's one of those things of like, I need 20 minutes to do this. No, I need 20 minutes to do this. That is zero sum, because there's a very finite number of minutes when you have a toddler, right? So that is a zero sum situation. Other things, can only spend a dollar once. I'd like to spend it on this. I'd like to spend it on this. Well, you can't buy both, so somebody's going to lose. Some situations are indeed zero sum, but not every situation is zero sum. So it's a matter of finding a way for you both to be happy with what's going on. And I think it, can, it helps to think about the bigger picture. Often we get messed up when we're too focused on the immediate situation. That's when it becomes easy to think zero-sum. So we're looking beyond the immediate situation. And when you look at the big picture, it's easier to bring out the best in you rather than the sort of petty and spiteful part of you. It's also this idea of what's called positive attending. When we're mad at our partner, we notice all the bad stuff they do. When we're happy with them, we tend to notice more of the good stuff they do. Well, we can do this on purpose. When you're feeling frustrated or disappointed or whatever with your partner, look for the stuff they're doing well. You notice it, and you tell them that you're noticing it. Good apologies. We all screw it up sometimes, some people more than others. However, a good apology goes a long way. Remember we talked about intentions versus actions? When your actions don't say it, use an apology to make your intentions clear. 
better to do it beforehand. Sometimes you got to do it afterwards. I think there's something here about a good apology contains a promise to try to change, to try to do something different next time. No guarantee, and definitely don't promise what you can't deliver, but there's something, it's kind of like, oh, I'm sorry for you know getting drunk and breaking all the furniture. Oh, well. Yeah, that doesn't sound so sorry. Sorry is, I will try to not do that again. Now, of course, the first part of an apology doesn't involve the other person. It involves ourselves, our own feelings, our conscience. If you are overwhelmed by your own disappointment, frustration, irritation, embarrassment, shame, confusion, you cannot give a good apology. You cannot deal in a good way with your partner because you're not dealing with a good way with yourself. And when all that stuff is going on inside you, probably what you're doing on the outside is being defensive or being offensive, but you're, you're not dealing with the situation in a productive way. So the first thing that's got to happen is you've got to sort it out inside your own head. And this kind of comes back to that whole integrity thing that we talked about in the beginning. Assuming you can deal with it productively within yourself, then we get to the point of owning up to what you did or didn't do, or at least to the effect on the other person. So if it's a situation where it's like, you didn't tell me whatever, and you're thinking back saying, I think I did. I thought I did. I don't know. And it's easy to get into that court of law mentality. Well, Your Honor, Exhibit A here, this is the newspaper you were reading at the time uh, you allegedly notified me of this, and therefore, I'm going to call a witness. Jimmy, come in here. Swear on this Bible, right? Relationships are not a court of law. It doesn't matter. The truth with a capital T, that'll hang you every time. It's more about, okay, you know what? Maybe you did say it. Maybe you didn't. Maybe I, I don't. You know what? I don't know. But what are we doing now? Okay, so here's the situation we're in, not the one we want it to be. What can we do now? And that's much more productive because if you get into this whole like he said, she said, and what happened, and let's go to the videotape, and all that kind of stuff, you're wasting time. Yeah, it's like on the TiVo, you know? Wait a second, I missed that. Let's go back. Tick, 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 eight seconds. <clears throat> And if you're spending too much time figuring out what happened in the past, it's because you're stuck in that more important to be right than happy thing. I'd rather be happy. I don't care who's right. Let's all be happy, right? And go on to something better. I think it's important to express some empathy or some regret so your partner knows that you mean it, you understand the effect that it had on them. And then finally, perhaps, some promise of what you will do different, or at least what you will try to do different. And it may be one of those things of, you know what, I would love to say I'll never be late again, but I won't. Like, I'm going to be late. I know it. That's just not one of the things I'm good at. I will try to not be as late. And maybe that's as good as it's going to get. Because like I said, don't promise what you can't deliver. Because then you're just deferring the argument for the next time, and now they're even more upset about it. And by the way, if they believe you, like, seriously, what, you know, where have you been the last however years of our relationship? All right, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but why the hell did you believe me? 
So, final thoughts. Stay committed. Stay committed to the relationship and stay committed to yourself. Give your best to get the best. Like I said in the beginning, the sign of a good relationship is that it pushes you to become a better person. Become that better person. Stay interested. Relationships are a learning process. You cannot know in the beginning what you will come to learn along the way. Keep learning. Keep learning about yourself. Keep learning about your spouse. Keep learning about what happens between you. And I'll grant you, I'm a psychologist, so I find weird sort of levels of interest in this stuff. But it's interesting stuff. And finally, stay flexible. Don't get into this, well, my sister's marriage or the people next door, I don't care what happens next door. You don't live next door. You live in your house. If it works for them, awesome for them. But because it works for them does not mean it will work for you. I have friends with horrible taste in music. They love it. Because they love it does not mean that I will love it, and vice versa. That's okay. I don't make them listen to my iPod, and they don't make me listen to theirs. So it's not about comparing your relationship to another one. I mean, steal good ideas from other relationships, absolutely. But don't compare them. Live your own relationship the way that you need to live it, however that looks. And don't feel like you have to defend it. Don't feel like you have to explain it. Don't feel like the in-laws get to make comments on it or whatever. And as far as that whole thing, you know, other people, they may get an opinion, but they don't get a vote. Everyone can have their opinion. It's the two of you who decide what happens. So, final joke here. Well, actually, no. First, first we get to the sponsorship part of this evening. So... Like I said, I've got a couple books. They're for sale out front. Also, like I said, nobody makes money writing books. Unless your name is Stephen King, you don't make money writing books. But, you know, you write books because you want to share good information and because good information makes people's lives better. I've got books here. The more you buy, the less I have to drag home. Um, and good books don't do any good sitting in publishers' warehouses or in my closet. So these are the books. If you think they'd be helpful, take one home with you. Um, I have a podcast I do once a week, 10 minutes a pop, short enough you can actually finish it. I've got all these great podcasts that I don't have time to finish. 10 minutes a pop, you can probably finish that. Short enough I can actually do one a week. Um, I have information about upcoming presentations, other stuff that I'm doing. So there's that. I've got these little postcards that look very nice from the graphic designer. Grab one of those as well. Last joke. <clears throat> Guy walks into a bar. Sits down next to another guy, orders a drink. Guy sitting next to him says, hey, see that waitress over there? Yeah, the you know, cute one. See the cute waitress walking? Guy says, yeah. Uh, first guy says, well, you know what? Asked her out a couple days ago. Went out last night. Great date. Smart as a whip. Funny. Great time. Not to be inappropriate, but, you know, things got a little physical. Seeing her again tonight. Second guy says, um, well, congratulations, I suppose, but why are you telling me? First guy says, hell, I'm telling everybody.
that's the feeling you want from your relationship. I'm telling everybody, I got a good thing going here. Let me tell you about it. So my hope is that this presentation has given you a couple of jokes, first of all, but also, you know, a good Friday night together, some things to think about, and some stuff to take home with you to hopefully make a better relationship for you and for your partner. And then trickle down if you got kids, also for them, because what we do teaches them about what relationships can be, and hopefully what relationships should be. So thank you. I definitely appreciate being here.